This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2020, one in about 45 people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the communities affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. Today, I'm going to talk about Deserted, a short story by Erato Iyowanis, a novelist and short story writer from Cyprus. Erato's work has been published in international anthologies and literary journals. Deserted was shortlisted for the 2019 Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Erato is the author of Cats Have It All, and she actually gifted me this book, which I'm reading at the moment. After I read Deserted, I reached out to Erato to do an interview for my blog, and she agreed. One of the questions I asked her is, what is Deserted about? Erato said, Deserted is the story of 80-year-old Anna, who decided to stay behind when the town of Varosi was deserted by its inhabitants in the summer of 1974. That was when Cyprus was invaded by Turkish military troops. Varosi remains a ghost town today. She also said it's a story about place as part of the self. When your place, your home is violently taken away from you, the self is also torn. And this is as painful as when the flesh is torn, dripping with blood and memories lost. I've read this story so many times as I do with any story that I discuss on my podcast. Deserted is indeed a story about place. But like any story about war, it's also a story of war and violence. I'll start by reading an excerpt from the story. As I read this excerpt and as I talk about deserted, I invite you to stop for a moment and think about home, about place, and what that means to you. Is it safety, family, love, friendships, memories, landscape? For many of us, at least for me, home is a place of safety. I have a daughter and I tell her that at home she can be and do whatever it is she wants to do. It is her safe space. Now imagine that place, that home, whatever that is for you, being ripped away from you. In a matter of hours, the city bled them all out, all of them. The grocers, the teachers and the shop owners, the hoteliers, the garbage collectors, the housewives, the bank clerks and the civil servants. The tourists got up from their sunbeds, pink skin glazed with coconut suntan oil, and went back home over the sea to safety. Foreign government officials and expatriates fled days before, when no one suspected, when no one had put two and two together. Someone must have whispered in their ears that soon, paratroopers would hang from the bluest summer sky. Who would have thought? Even though there was no official call for evacuation, Varosi was draining. Duty salons with pyramids made of suitcases and bundles fastened on their roofs jammed the city's roads. Sweaty armpits, hands, heads and elbows hung from their windows. Fitful honking pierced the hot air, thick with rapid breathing and whispers. They all drove off reassuring themselves they would be back soon. Dockies were slipped under flower pots. Back doors were left ajar. Lights on the front verandas were forgotten, switched on. Anna's mind was made up. 
80 full years she had lived in Farosi, she wasn't going anywhere. Let everybody leave and let whoever is coming come. She would be ready for them. She sat calmly, hands on her knees, and watched her daughter stuffing a bag with an extra change of clothes for her and a child, clean towels, soap, a kilo of rice and condensed milk, photo albums. Through the clutter of preparations came the voice of her granddaughter. Yeah, please, come, the child said, the corners of her mouth bending, a nylon bag hanging by her small thigh, bunny ears and goggly teddy bears, bare eyes peered from inside it. She was wearing her blue velvet coat even though temperature had hit 40 degrees. You don't need a coat, her mother said sharply. What if it's cold where we are going, she protested. Her voice high-pitched on the verge of becoming shrill. Stop whining, her mother raised her voice. It's midsummer. Take it off. We shall be back before you know it. The girl cowed, picked up a scrunched candy wrapper from the kitchen table. She looked at it for a moment and stuffed it too, as an afterthought into the nylon bag. Then she looked at her grandmother again. Come, she said, come, come, come. She stomped her feet on the tile floor until her mother shook her. Stop it. Anna pulled a child to her. I'm an old woman, weak and sick. I had better stay at home. She said, running thick-skinned fingers over the child's face, hot and damp with tears and mucus. You'll be back on Sunday for lunch, she continued, as always. She forced a smile, lips shut, a curved line. Sagging skin made it seem wider, truer than it really was. She kissed the tip of the child's nose and then her swollen eyelids. There's no harm, really, me staying home. That is, really, no harm. Have you gone mad? Her daughter said. She was standing in the middle of the room, holding the stainless steel casserole by the handles. As it was still warm, she had wrapped it in a checked towel, thumbs pressing on the lid as she held it. Her elbows extended from her sides like a migratory bird's wings during flight. Her cheekbones protruded awkwardly. We shall be back in a couple of days. What do you want me to do, beg you to come? Anna stood up and fumbled aimlessly around the kitchen, as though she had lost something but could not remember what. Suddenly, all the right reasons for staying popped into her head. Who's going to pull out the weeds from your father's grave? Have you not thought of that? Of course you haven't. Who's going to take care of the house? Who's going to water the rose bushes and geraniums? You've forgotten it, Summer? Who's going to take care of the orchard? My lemon trees will dry up and die. And what about the chickens and the pigeons? Who's going to feed the chickens and the pigeons? She said, pointing at the two-by-two two enclosure in the yard where chickens and pigeons bob their heads in agreement from behind the wire. So be it then, said the daughter. But you have to promise to take your pills, she added, one leg in the yellow ford and the other placed firmly on the ground. I'll take my pills. You are so forgetful lately, the daughter said, but not loud enough for her mother to hear. You promise me now, she repeated, her intonation highlighting promise. The bottle is right next to the cabinet in the bathroom, in the yellow basket where you keep your toiletries. The daughter said, I know where the damn bottle is. Anna said to herself, waving them off. Explosions were heard in the distance, causing a surge of helpless screams from the cramped streets. People got out of their cars and started running for shelter, 
car doors agape and engines left running. From behind the wheel of her car, Casserole still in her hands, the daughter looked up to the roof. Her pupils shifted fast from one corner to the other. The child clasped her mother's thighs and pressed her head against her belly. The daughter lifted the pot high to make space. You'll be here for lunch on Sunday, the old woman said stoically, stealing glances at the sky. I'll make roast lamb with potatoes. You have one week's worth of pills in the bottle. We shall be back before you know it. The tires spat gravel as the car sped away. The granddaughter, head tilted to the side, looked at her from the rear window, right before the car vanished behind its cloud of white dust. Never in her life had she seen dust so ghostly. She raised her hands but didn't wave. Two fingers twitched. She looked at those fingers angrily, thinking that this body of hers had gotten a mind of its own. I'll bake bread, she thought. I'll knead the dough and make bread for Sunday, you'll see. Her gaze wandered to where the end of the road had swallowed the car. There was an airy silence now, as though Wo had gone to sleep. It was a silence so thick that if it lasted longer, she would be convinced she had lost her hearing. But a sudden gust of wind stirred the treetops and banged the window shutters against the walls. Sparrows darted into the sky. Her front yard, which had always granted her with a panoramic view of Varosi, was proving now miserably inadequate. The city was there, but at the same time it wasn't. The tall apartment buildings and the hotels stood muted against the pink afternoon backdrop, empty seashells on her beloved beach. With her hands on her waist, she pondered on the absurdity of it all. She found it difficult to digest how a whole city could be deserted in just a few hours. The grand betrayal. How did they do it? How did they leave their homes behind without a second thought? Their flowers, their animals, their dead to the mercy of whoever was coming from where the sounds of war were heard. Absurd. She sucked her teeth, making those sounds that annoyed her daughter, but she wasn't there to be annoyed. I'm not dying a refugee in some other place, she said. With her hand on her forehead to cut off the blinding light, she watched the sun go down, and she knew in her gut that she had made the right decision. They'll be back, she said, slapping the air in front of her. I see this story in two parts. The first part is the departure of the family and the days immediately after their departure. The second part is after Anna's death. The main character in Deserted is 80-year-old Anna. The other characters in the story are her daughter and granddaughter, who we only meet at the beginning of the story in the excerpt that I just read as they're getting ready to, re to leave Varosi. The other character we meet later on is a soldier who is unnamed. And also we, the other character is Anna's dead husband, Yanis. And then there is a cat. When I spoke to Erato, rather when Erato did the interview for her blog, she said to me that cats are a big part of the landscape and cats are characters in all her stories. The paragraphs I've read are very visual as they show the exodus of the people from Varosi city. In fact, I find that Erato uses language in a very vivid way. She describes, she has these very vivid images that place you in the setting and also the choice of words. You know, she says in a matter of words, the city bled them all out. And we really see literally 
people being bled out of Varosi. You know, she talks about grocers, teachers, restaurant owners, shop owners, hoteliers, garbage collectors, housewives, bank clerks, everyone. She even mentions tourists who are on this on the sunbeds on the beach. And then she also says something like, even though there was no official call for evacuation, Varosi was draining. Again, you, you can imagine something being drained. And she has this visual image of these dusty salons that are um, full of suitcases and bundles that are fastened on their roofs and look like pyramids that have jammed the city's roads. And she talks about sweaty armpits, hands, heads and elbows that hang from windows, about the fitful honking that is piercing the hot air and as well as the rapid breathing and whispers. It is a very brilliant job of drawing an image of people fleeing war. It's always an exodus of people. I don't know if you've seen any images and um, some photographers really take these great images of cities, villages, of people fleeing once war erupts. You know, you always see a mass of people of all ages. You know, you see children, elderly people, people working on sticks, bicycles, cars, people on foot, animals, flocks of sheep, cows, goats, chicken, you know, people carrying luggages, you know, and those can range from very small bundles to lots of luggage. And this always really depends on who's had an opportunity to pack up or who even has the means to be able to take their luggage. But, you know, sometimes people are not even able to carry their identity documents. That's how... um the departure of flight from war is, it's very sudden, it's not predictable at all. And you don't have the means to organize your travel or to pack the things that you need. In there, in those excerpts I just read, again, the narrator talks about how foreign government officials and expatriates fled days before when no one suspected anything was going to happen. And this again is so true in most contexts where we have conflict Diplomats are normally, you know, provided intelligence by their governments and evacuated before the mayhem starts. So that's something that we see a lot um, that happens during war too. The emptiness of Varosi is tangible. And this is something that comes up through and throughout the story. You know, we see these facades of luxurious hotels soaring up in the sunlight sky. Their emptiness is just disturbed by a pack of dogs wandering in banquet rooms, sniffing human absence in the air, sleepy cats on the sun lounges by the pool, crows in pairs balanced on the rails. And that emptiness, that theme of emptiness of a city that is being deserted in a very short period comes over and over, especially as we see later on in the story when Anna is by herself in the city. In the, paragraphs of, in the paragraphs I have read, the thing that struck me the most are the scenes and this dialogue when this family is making the decision to stay and leave. You know, we know Anna has decided to stay. She doesn't want to leave. But we know her daughter and granddaughter are getting ready to depart from the, from the city. And we just see that agonizing decision for them. 
Anna says she's sick, she's old, and she doesn't want to die a refugee. And one of the stories I actually like, one of the reasons I like this story very much is also because the main character is an elderly person. And in many stories, in many of our work, at least as humanitarian workers, we don't really hone in a lot on the life of elderly people when they are impacted by war. So I like very much uh, this focus on this 80-year-old woman um, who has really decided she's just not going to go anywhere. And she tells her daughter all of these reasons why she doesn't want to leave. You know, there is her father's grave. She doesn't want to leave her dead husband there. You know, she's, you know, who's going to take care of her house, who's going to water the flowers, you know, the rose bushes and geraniums. And, you know, she her, her orchard, her lemons, she doesn't want them to dry up and die. Her chickens and, and pigeons, you know, who's going to feed the chicken and pigeons, she asks. And, um, and so, you know, these are all the reasons she, she doesn't want to leave. But she also says she does not want to die a refugee. At the same time, you know, her daughter and granddaughter are begging her to come with them. And she's reassuring them that they will be back soon. We also see them pack for their departure. And one of the things as I was reading this story, I kept wondering about is how do you pack for the unknown when you don't know? for how long you're going and where you're going to go. You know, what do you pack? We see the child is wearing a blue velvet coat, even though the temperature is 40 degrees and her mother tells her sharply she doesn't need it. But the girl is like, you know, what if it's cold? And her mother just orders her to take it off. We shall be back before you know it. But we also see, you know, them picking out, selecting items to pack and again, what do you pack when you don't know how long you're going to be gone for? What do you take with you? In the end, they take, you know, a few clothes, clean towels, soap, some rice, tins of swan and condensed milk, photo albums, and a warm casserole. But I also wondered, how do you leave your mother behind who's sick when you know no one is going to be there to look after her, to remind her to take her pills? that she really relies on for her life and she forgets to take. And in there, you know, you hear both of them, the mother and the daughter reassuring them that themselves that it's going to be for a few for a few days. We shall and Anna says, you know, they'll be back for lunch on Sunday and she will make roast lamb with potatoes. And you know, the daughter asks, you know, her mother to promise to take her pills have one week worth of pills and you know you'll be back before we know it and so again you know we see that they are leaving they are hoping that their departure is really going to be temporary only a few days and even as they pack they are packing for only a few days Anna will miss her family for only a few days she has pills for a week and they'll be back before these pills are finished and it is with many people who flee from war. For many, they hope that it's temporary. But in many cases, in fact, in majority of cases, as we know, wars are anything but temporary. And in fact, we'll see later on that a week goes by and Anna's granddaughter and daughter are not back. 
In normal circumstances, when you leave your home, your country, your family, to go away, you make plans. You organize for someone to come and water your plants, walk your dog, if you have one, feed your cat, if you have one, feed your cows and pigeon. You know, if you have a grandmother who cannot join you or a grandfather or a family member who is ill and needs support while you're gone, again, you make arrangements for someone to come and check in on them, make sure they're okay. You know where you're going, you know for how long you're going, you know exactly how to park and what to take with you and what not to take. And when you come home, things will be more or less how you left them. You know, maybe dust would have gathered on the tables and all the surfaces and the curtains. Maybe you forgot bananas on the table. You forgot to leave them in the fridge and they are rotten. But things are more or less the way you left them. And that's one of the things that, again, we see in this story that these families, these people, this community were uprooted just like that. And um, again, when I was uh, speaking to Erato, one of the things she actually did say, and I think I'll read it much later in, in, in the story, is that, you know, Varosi remains an empty, an empty town. People have not really returned since that invasion. I mentioned earlier that Deserted is a story about place. And in, in her interview for my blog, Erato said this about place. We carry place within us no matter what. And by place, I mean the country we were born in, the country we were raised in, the ones that we've visited or we've lived in for short or longer periods of time. Place shapes who we are. It molds our personalities and our identities. Some people may not be familiar with the tragic history of Cyprus, my homeland. The results of the Turkish military invasion on the island in 1974 have inflicted deep wounds. Inherited trauma has been haunting us. It has left its mark on the literary work we produce. Even, one, even when one makes a conscious decision not to write about the war, there is no escape. Its violence has not subsided. It's still present in our memories, even in the memories of those born after the war. It's present in its physical form, in the line separating the island in two, two parts. It has marked the souls of the refugees the lives of those who lost their loved ones, their homes, their everything. After Anna's daughter and granddaughter leave Varosi, we start to see more of Varosi through Anna's memories, through her eyes, through her, how she spends her days. We see her in the kitchen with her late husband's Beretta as she remembers the many times she sat across from him at the kitchen and watched him clean it with a twinkle in his eyes, his gentle brown eyes with slightly drooping eyelids. How she kissed those eyelids jokingly one time and then picked up the habit, first a soft kiss on the tip of his nose, then another on the right eyelid and another on the left. This is one of the things about home. It's the memories that we create in our homes, in the places we live, in the places we, we, we visit. You know, memories of happiness, joy, anger, the day your first child was brought home, you know, a child's christening, Christmas parties, you know, pictures of them, the refrigerator of things we've collected over time, a magnet you picked up from somewhere, you know, a rock you picked up on a hike, a shell from a walk on the beach, a chair you picked on the streets, you picked from the streets. 
And this is the thing about place, about home, is that those things that we accumulate, they remind us of something. And again, when people are displaced by conflict, they lose these memories as well. And we see Anna with her memories as she stays on in virus. And again, I guess it helps to explain why she chose to stay in her home. We see her sleeping keep next to the, her chickens and pigeons. And at this point in the story, she's picked up a rifle and she's put it on her chest, which gives her some level of confidence. And she really, you know, says to herself, if the enemy does come, she would not go down easy. But we also see her really ask herself, who would harm an old woman? Who's going to die tomorrow if she forgets to take her pills? But again, this is the brutality of war. Even though Anna is old and sick, even though if she forgets to take her pills, she will die, if a soldier or a rebel finds her, they will shoot her without a second thought. We see her rehearse what she would tell the enemy should they come. You know, she thinks about her words carefully, makes a conscious decision about the tone of her voice and practices that rhythm and intonation you know, as she looks in the mirror, she says she, she practices um, an old woman, palms clenching the lips of the wash basin. I could be your grandmother. Are you going to kill your grandmother? You will be forever cursed if you feel your grandmother. And I guess in her mind, this plea to that soldier who will happen, who will come to her home and find her, will, you know, um, give them reason to save her life. After a week has passed, Anna is still waiting for her family to come back home. We know this because on Sunday she actually cooks. She bakes bread and makes roasted lamb and, and potatoes as she promised her family before they left. And she sets the table and she sits and waits, but nobody comes except a striped cat uh, who winced at her from the doorstep. And from that moment, if I just say something about the cat, from that moment, the cat more or less stays by Anna's side, and that's actually the other character I mentioned in the book. But no, Anna, Anna's family never comes back. And when I go back to what I was saying earlier, that all these families left, believing they were gone for a few days. In fact, in the excerpt I, I, I read, you see that some of the families, you know, just left their keys under the doormat, you know, under the doormat. You know, I also talked about Anna and her, her, and her daughter reassuring themselves that they will be gone for, for a few days. But one week goes by and they, are not, they don't come back. And by the time the story ends, you know, Anna's daughter and granddaughter are not back in Varosi. Again, going back to place, we see that Anna knows Varosi very well. When she needs to stock up food, she goes to the grocery store. The grocery stores in the neighborhood. She knows the back door is left open during the daytime. She knows, you know, and she just walks in, lets herself in, goes on the shelves, picks up whatever she needs, uses the teal, and then leaves, you know, the money there. Um, so it's really, this is really um, a woman who knows Varosi very well. Again, she spent 80 years of her life there, and it helps us to understand a little bit more why she does not want to live. In addition, of course, to the fact that 
Her dead husband is there. She's old, she's weak, and that she doesn't want to die a refugee in another place. But as I said again, the story is in two parts. You know, the first part, as I said earlier, is when the family is leaving. And then immediately after Anna's life, after the departure of the family, the second part of the story is told by Anna's ghost. At least this is what I believe. From the beginning of the story, we know that Anna is sick and the story is set up in a way that the reader expects her to die. Um, but I was still taken by surprise and I had to read the story quite a few times before I actually understood that Anna did in fact die in the story and that the second part of the story is told by her, go is told by her ghost. But we see throughout the story that death is on her mind. Of course, there is the pills that, that are mentioned at the beginning of the story that she has to take to stay safe. We also know that her daughter says that um, she often forgets to take her pills. And so, and I don't know, it's not clear for me in the story whether she forgot to take her pills and this is why she died. But suddenly, in the second part of the story, Anna dies. And I believe she dies as soon as she's back from the from the from the grocery. I'm not very certain if that's the point at which Anna dies, but if you ever read the story, I'd love to hear your take. But basically, on her way from the grocery store, palpitations creep from her chest up to her throat. And um, she, the first thing she thinks is she knows she's going to die, and she's going to die in an empty city on an empty on an empty street. Again, back to that theme about emptiness that I already mentioned. All alone on the hot asphalt, surrounded by the food she has just bought. And we see her lie in the street and breathing slowly. You know, she lets her gaze wander to the sky and she sees the ghost of her husband looking at her and beckoning her to follow him. But at that point, she doesn't really follow him. She, you know, she says her number is not yet up. And in fact, we see her going back home. And when she's back at home, she realizes she only has two days worth of pills left in the bottle. And again, as she's looking at these pills, tremors come over her heart. I'm going to die here. My skull will be crushed, hitting the lip of the toilet bowl on my way down. And my body's going to disintegrate on the bathroom tiles. She talks to herself. But I'm going to read, and then she goes to dig a grave for herself just in case. And I'm going to read the paragraph that explains the moment when she's digging her grave. She dug herself a grave just in case. It was shallow, but she didn't mind. It was right at her home in her garden underneath her rose bushes. She got in to try it as one would try on a shirt. She needed to be comfortable. This was eternity. It was no job. As she lay in the shallow pit, she crossed her hands over her belly. She even closed her eyes. The cat neared her and smelled her cheek. Its nose felt sandpapery, and then it hit her. There would be no one to actually bury her. Her body would just lay there, dead at the mercy of all sorts of rodents and wild, carnivorous birds. Yanis would be shaking his head if he saw her. Why so much worry over body? which had betrayed her in the worst possible way. As it aged, it became her enemy, drooping and gelatinous. 
always going against her will. I want to swim. No, you won't. I want to run. No, you can't. I want to make love. Don't be ridiculous. I believe this is when she died. She wasn't able to get up from the grave and the rest of the story is told by her ghost. Again, as the ghost tells the story, we still see more of the landscape of Varosi. Anna goes to the beach as a ghost. We see her in the pharmacy looking for pills for her heart condition. We see her make eye contact with one of the soldiers. And, you know, one of the soldiers who looks like her, her dead husband. We see her visit Yanis's Yanis's grave. We see her shoot rats and snakes, which now roam the empty, empty, empty streets. At the beginning of the story, Anna doesn't want to leave Varosi. She doesn't want to die a refugee in some other place. And while at least that wish is granted for her, but it is really sad that she dies by herself and with her last thought that there will be no one to bury her and her body would just lay there dead at the mercy of all sorts of rodents and wild carnivorous birds is true. She dies by herself. We don't know if her daughter and granddaughter returned to Varosi, or if, but even if they do, you know, what condition would they find in, you know, would they find her body in? Would they find her grave if, if at all? And therein is the heartbreak of war. But as I read this story and as I think about this moment of her death, this family, I also think about the pandemic that we are living through right now where so many have died without the comforts of their loved ones, without the possibility of closure, of burial. But for so many refugees, for so many internally displaced persons, this is the reality of their lives. They are just not able to bury their loved ones when they die back home or to be with them and comfort them during those last moments. In her interview, Erato said that her writing is influenced by trauma caused by war. Even when her stories do not directly deal with it, war is still there, lacking under the surface. After all, the aftermath of the Turkish military invasion of Cyprus is still there. My country is still divided. Thousands of soldiers occupy the north part of the island. War affects my characters in all the ways that it has affected all Cy Cyprus. Deserted suddenly helped me to understand how this war affected Anna and her family. And I'm sure if I ever visited Varosi, I would suddenly find that many residents of Varosi fled because of the war, that the many have not returned and many have died without their loved ones. If you have enjoyed this story, you can read it in details online in the Commonwealth Review. And if there's a story out there you'd like me to read and talk about, send it my way and I'll be happy to talk about it. Thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. And my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer Jamal Swift. Music by the Nomadic Band.